business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. On today's podcast, I had the opportunity to visit with Scott Oliver. And if you've ever wondered who who is in the deal beyond buy side, sell side, who's in the who's in the banks? Who's the bank's counsel? This is that guy. So any SBA loan has a, has a attorney that's looking out for the bank's interest. And I thought it would be prudent for buyers and sellers to understand somebody that deals with how to make sure that your deal is compliant. And Scott Oliver is, he is everywhere. If you're on LinkedIn, he has a, he writes all the time on it. He is a partner at Lewis and Kappas and just one of those generous guys of information. And I can tell you that having, having met him now and, and talking about deals, he is, he is the real deal as it relates to 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 this segment of the SBA process. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Oliver. I'm your host, Ed Meisiglan. On this podcast, I interview buyers, sellers, advisors, and all kinds of other people about what creates value in a business and how they take that information and make that business more valuable and ultimately be able to sell for a premium value. On today's show, I've been uh, looking forward to this interview for a couple months now. It's Scott Oliver of Lewis and Kappa. So welcome, Scott. Hey, thanks, Ed, for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. So in my introduction, I kind of gave a little bit of an overview of you, but and I guess I, I'm like we were talking in the pre-show. I, I, I wanted you to talk about the, you know, all the things that go on behind the scenes that most sellers and buyers don't understand. So can you talk a little bit about your practice and 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 how you're doing that? Yeah. So I, I've been an SBA for about a decade. As you said, I work at Lewis Capus. I'm a partner here now. And we really like to call it a, a lean, mean, oiled machine of getting deals done. So we have a, a good bench of attorneys and dedicated paralegals who are solely closing deals for SBA lenders in all 50 states. Uh, so all across the country. And while we're doing that, uh, there's really systems in place to get those deals done. Some of the clients are having us interact directly with the buyers and sellers while others have specific you know tasks that they want us to do that doesn't involve uh, any communication with the buyer or seller so so what do you think your practice is made up between between represented deals like deal you know my my understanding is that there's about a I don't know, 10%, 10% come from represented deals, like meaning from, from deal guys, M&A, brokers, so on and so forth. I mean, what, is that what you see or no? 
Yeah, that's that's pretty common. Normally, if there's a broker involved, sometimes the brokers are fantastic. Other times, <laughs> they can be right. uh, a bit of a, of a pain uh, to deal with. Sure. But the big one that we see differences in are deals that are either representative of people who have counsel uh, for sure. the buyer or counsel for the borrower. And honestly, I, I'd say it's probably 60-40. 60% will have counsel, 40% won't. Uh, and, you know, depending on which attorney is involved, those deals can be walks in the park yeah. as long as everybody's, you know, communicating and being a real deal team with the same goals in mind of getting the deal done, uh, you know, quickly, sure. uh, organized, and also in compliance uh, with the SBA regs, which is what I'm really looking at on my client side. So, how did you find out of all the different different services that an attorney can provide. How did you find <laughs> SBA work? I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking is just where, how did you, I mean, cause it is really a niche. There's not a whole lot of people doing it, right? Or yeah, am I wrong? There's not a ton. I mean, there's only yeah. a handful of law firms in the United States that have a fully dedicated team that closes SBA deals. Okay. Uh, some people will dabble in it uh, and those people are more or less successful in that. But from my Front. I initially went to law school thinking that I wanted to be a litigator. Uh, I like mm -hmm. to talk. You know, everybody says that I sure. like to argue and things like that. But I realized very, very quickly uh, that that really wasn't, you know, first off, what I was good at or, or two, what filled my cup, what I was interested in. Sure. So I started exploring options uh, where I could put my knowledge of business, finance, uh, communication skills and things like that to the test in a way that's the happy side of law, you know, helping people sure. get something done. So my second year of law school, I ended up getting one of those coveted summer associate positions uh, at Lewis Capus. I've been here my entire career. And nice. during that time, I met with a couple of the partners who said, hey, I see what you're interested in. You like business. Uh, you're good at this sort of thing. Why don't you try SBA? And at that time, I said, like, student bar association. Oh, I'm in the student bar association. Yeah, I'm good okay. at that. And they said, no, no, no. <laughs> Small business administration. Right. And so they handed me files that were closed and said, look at these, take a look, see what you think, read about the credit memos and then come back and talk with us and see if this is something you're interested in doing. So I did that. And I honestly, it sounds super cliche. I fell in love with the practice area, mainly because you were seeing deal after deal after deal of these entrepreneurs that have these goals and you're figuring out how the deal structures are put together and what these entrepreneurs are doing to either start or scale their business. Fascinating. It, yeah. I, well, and I'm, you, you just gave me about four other questions I didn't think about. <laughs> um, but can you can you start with your process? Like, so I so a deal comes, it goes. You know, it's an SBA candidate. The SBA lender. I'm, I'm assuming you know makes their makes their pitch. Here's the um, you know the you know the um, the the letter the the credit letter um you know basically their their letter of intent and then i'm assuming that's when you get involved or do you get involved prior to that so can you take me to the from start to finish yeah so most of our clients are institutional clients so we're basically the partner in their pocket where they can you know bounce ideas off of us at any sort of point but a deal comes into our office when there is a signed commitment letter and a signed credit memorandum Right. So we'll usually get a deal from one of the banks and we'll look at it and we'll say, okay, here are the basic terms. And then that credit memo that's usually 50 plus pages that is the deal in a nice little packet is what we start with. 
I personally prepare what we actually dubbed here at the office as a DLP. It stands for Digital Legal Pad. Uh, we can go okay. down that rabbit hole if you'd like, but it was during COVID. Sure. Uh, I put together this uh, basically a smart form checklist of any deal type that you could possibly imagine. And when we get those two documents in, we take that master version and we'll chop it down. And it, and it will literally nice. tell you everything that your buyer needs or the borrower in this instance needs to do in order to comply with the SBA standard operating procedure. So SOP 5106. Um, and then it tracks communications with that bank, with that closer throughout oh, wow. the life of the deal. So we can cut out some of the gut uh, of the email correspondence. Sure. Say, here's what we've done. Here's what we need to do. And here's where we're at when we're getting ready to sit down at the closing table and close this thing out. So, okay. So the smart pad, I mean, what, what was the vehicle that I've, I've never heard of the smart pad? I mean, was it a Google doc? Was it a, a I mean, what does that mean? It's it the way you're putting it makes it sound more impressive than it is. Uh, so it's, a, it's a document that, that I put together uh, actually when COVID hit, because we're, we still have a big physical presence in Indianapolis. We're yeah. in one America. Um, whenever a deal would come in, we'd have these big, they call them bankers files, uh, sure. uh, tab documents where we print every single document, every operating agreement, franchise agreement and all that. We put them in there and then we have this big box basically for every single deal. COVID happened and I was, it's, it's almost comical, like lugging in like briefcases and backpacks, all these things saying, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. I'm going to have all my stuff at home. We're going to take care of this. Well, two weeks, as you guys know, did not turn into two weeks. Right. And at that point, I couldn't do the physical paper anymore. It was getting so cumbersome and deals were starting to pile up and I was saying, this doesn't work. So I got a Microsoft Word template out and essentially plug and played every Good. single requirement Good and made you. a master version that nice. takes, you know, if I had a hundred deals on my desk, it condenses that so that I can send this document to any of my associates, any of my paralegals, they can look at it and know exactly what needs to be done for the client. Yeah. We, Electronically. Nice. I mean, and, and similarly, we, you know, in our shop, I mean, same thing. I mean, we, we, we had, yeah, the COVID, COVID hit and we had, we needed a means to, to effectively communicate on, on how, mm -hmm. how we were going to continue to do deals. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. So, so what, what version of the SOPs are we on? We're on G? Uh, SOP 5010-6. In there, like an E F A A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P. Uh, let me see. I can't recall what number it is, but it's oh. the one that came out in uh, a couple years back. And they're saying that another version will be I coming heard. out, supposed to be in November, uh, yeah. but it's still anticipated in Q one of this year. So it's funny that, like, in USPAP, like, so Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice. I know you know what that means, but mm. for our listeners, you know, in in their in their documentation, they have, you know, guidance, you know, uh, different, different types of situations where it's, you know, these are, this is how you should handle that. And I'm just wondering with all the deals, I mean, do they defer to you for interpretation of the SOP or is there someone to, that has authored the SOP that can give you guidance when you're, when you're stuck? Most of the time they're, they're deferring to legal counsel if they have legal counsel to interpret the SOP. That's why it's so important uh, for when you hire counsel to hire counsel that doesn't just dabble in it. Uh, if you haven't seen 
multiple, multiple, multiple deals over a period of time, yeah. been in the space over a period of time. You don't know how the SBA has interpreted things in the past. You haven't seen how deals shake out in the event of default uh, and all of that. So legal counsel, we're usually asked, hey, what does the SOP say about this or how do we handle this? But the SOP, at least 5010-6, is going to be your eligibility guideline. So it's almost like that baseline of what lenders must follow. Throughout that document, you'll see prudent used a lot because the SOP provides these regs. Uh, sure. But at the end of the day, the lender also has to be prudent. And the prudent lending standard is gray. Lawyers like gray because it requires to interpret. But then the bank has to make these decisions, which are sometimes business decisions. Right. And we'll see a lot of banks get caught up and, and they'll say, oh, well, we, we had this this firm. And they said, no, we can't do this no matter what. Draw a line in the sand where in many instances, depending on the deal, that's not the answer. It's here's what the SOP says. You have to have an eligible deal. Of course, here's what the borrower is asking. Here's the type of deal. Here's the collateral. Here are your risks. Now, bank, how do you want to proceed given this information? And who, when you say the bank, who at the bank is making that decision? Mm -hmm. So when we're working with people, it's usually a closer that's on the other side. Most banks have closers. Yep. They're the ones that are kind of on the ground level working with counsel. But if it comes to a business decision like that, that really requires additional input, you're looking at the senior credit underwriter. Uh, you're looking at bank management. And depending on their, I guess, hierarchical structure, who is actually making a business slash risk assessment based on counsel's recommendation. So... So the when the package gets to you, mm -hmm. so they've already they've are has due diligence concluded or is it in process or where are they where are they at in the spectrum of the deal? Usually, it has the due diligence, legal due diligence. Is that what you're referring to? Yep. Uh -huh. Usually, they don't have that uh, in legal. I'm sorry, uh, accounting. Uh, regular okay. accounting due diligence. Your underwriting is usually uh -huh. complete. So okay. they have a credit memorandum. They've taken a look and said, okay, this collateral is available. Here's what we have to take. Here's what we might take depending on the specifics of the deal. All of that is usually taken care of unless there's you know, a trailing it. requirement. And as you know, through your work, deals change, sure. circumstances change. Maybe I get a document in and I say, this is ineligible. We can't do this. That requires a restructure of the deal. That can happen, and yeah. if it does, they'll document their file with a change memo, or they'll have to get an update, signed commitment letter it. from the client, uh, what have you. So it's an ever-evolving process uh, throughout. I get it. So does the you know we keep on seeing all this stuff about like quality of earnings and things like that. So it when credit credit and again, I guess it, it is a business decision, but does it does your work is it ever influenced by the, I suppose, the uh, comprehensiveness or like, let's just say, you know, a, a credit, you know, this comes from uh, um, you get a deal and it has a quality of earnings report. It has all of maybe audited financial statements. And I get mm -hmm. that that it is a business decision, but does that necessarily influence you at all? based on the risk associated with the deal? Or is it just total, you know, this? I'm doing compliance work and if you guys like the quality of earnings because it makes you happy, then have at it. Is that it? Yeah, that's that's usually separated. And, yeah. and so what I like to tell my associates that are coming up through SBA2 is we always have to remember which hat we're wearing. Yeah. Uh, that's 
That's to protect and to benefit our firm, of course, but it's also to protect the bank. Yeah. We can't be getting involved in the bank's policies and procedures and underwriting uh, credit box, uh, things like that. If we get a deal in and credit says that it is good, we're not looking at financials. We're okay. not looking at things like that. But if we get something across our desk and it violates uh, the SOP, we're required to point that out. Or we see an issue in a purchase agreement, a resolutions, title work, searches, all of the different things that we do through our scope of services. Sure. Uh, we're partnering with the bank and pointing those types of things out. I got it. So, but at the same time, so if you see a, a, a structure that doesn't comply, and I'm trying to think of a, a situation where it doesn't comply, um, no. but and you just flag it, and now it now it becomes either either you have to change the deal to mm -hmm. to in order for compliance purposes. And I'm mm -hmm. you got an example that uh, of a situation where. You know, here's the deal structure and, and yeah, this isn't going to work. And by the way, I guess the bigger question is why wouldn't the under, why wouldn't the, the, uh, the lender know the rule, you know? Yeah. And, and most of the time, we're not going to get a deal in where there is a glaring issue, uh, especially if we're working with, you know, some of our more experienced, mm -hmm. uh, lenders in that space. They have goalposts. They have certain aspects within their underwriting process where they're going to catch most of that. But at the same time, you might get a deal and the deal is approved with uh, one borrower, let's say, and the mm -hmm. borrower isn't formed yet. It's an entity to be formed. I call that an ETBF on my um, DLP. It's a lot of acronyms, right? No, um, so let's say that it's approved in that manner. The borrower then gets an attorney and the attorney is a brilliant tax attorney slash corporate attorney. Right. right. And they say, well, for such and such reasons, we actually want you to form a real estate holding company to buy the real estate, and we want you to form an operating company to run the business. Okay. okay. And the borrower says, all right, lawyer, you said this. I trust you. I want to proceed in this fashion. Well, that's not what was approved with the bank. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't kill the deal. Sure. But they have to go to the bank and say, look, my, my lawyer said I need to have two entities, one for the real estate and one for the operating company. Yep. At that point... I would be getting involved because what that's called is an EPCOC transaction, uh, eligible passive company slash operating company transaction. That triggers some very, very strict requirements from the SBA. So we'd have to structure it that way. And I'd be talking with the underwriter saying, look, we have to have this eligible passive company. This eligible passive company has to lease 100% of the real estate that it purchases it. to the eligible operating company. We have to have requirements in the SOP with the lease, the rent payments, and things like that. Got and we it. need to make sure that when we get to the closing table, that eligible passive company is not receiving the working capital because you'd have a guarantee, you know, at least a repair, probably a denial uh, in that situation. I get it. So I, I was wondering, because I, I had never heard of the term eligible passive company rule. Mm -hmm. I, I, and, and we've done lots, lots of SBA deals where there is, you know, where, where there's a an operating entity and and a real estate entity, so oh, I'm I'm going to be a, a lot I'll, I'll be a lot more eloquent these days <laughs> on on that. So are are there are there other provisions that that you see that are are so underutilized that you you just kind of shake your head on, you know, if you if you only knew about this, you you would you would run toward it and say, yeah, this this really works pretty well. From a buyer's perspective? Yeah, buyer or seller. Yeah, uh, I, yeah let's go buyer. <laughs> seller. Yeah, I, 
I think most of the time that what we see with buyers or buyers counsel is not that they structure it in a way that's not advantageous to the buyer. It's that they are drafting documents and they don't have an understanding of what is required by the SBA. And if they were to either have that understanding initially or consult with somebody who does know the SBA, whether that's the lender or another attorney, they could draft documents that are compliant at the outset yeah. or at least have an understanding of what those need to look like so that they can start talking with, let's say, the seller. Or yeah. um, another good example is talking with the landlord, <laughs> right? Sure. Talking with the landlord early and saying, this is the type of business we have. Here are the lender's requirements. Here's what the SOP says. And by the way, uh, we need this landlord waiver signed. Yeah. And doing that early. I see so many deals where counsel is involved for you know a month and then they just start talking about the purchase yeah. agreement and the landlord waiver a week before they want to close. Doesn't work. No, and 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 again, and it's a reflection. I, I know in situations where where we've dragged our feet, it's it's all right. This this deal is teetering, you know, and 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 you know, it's funny. It's either it happens to either be at the quarter where financials are going to come out, or it's gonna it's gonna be at the at the year, and and everybody wants to 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 see that. So. Yeah. I get it. Um, so I wanted to ask about, do you guys ever make concessions? Do, do you see banks ever make concessions on, you know, on, on risk, mm-hmm. you know, that I, because I'm sitting here going, all right, most banks, so they're going to get 75% guarantee. You know, they have, you know, I don't want to say little exposure, but they, you know, certainly the, they don't want it to default, but at the same time, they, they want that loan, but mm-hmm. do they ever make any kind of concessions or it's like, yeah, you know what, we'll, we'll wait for the next one. Yeah. I, I don't deal in absolute. So I could never say no, they will never make a concession. Right. Yeah. And that's not my place to say for those banks in those instances, mm-hmm. but at the same time, a bank is not going to waive something that jeopardizes its guarantee. Okay. Yeah. So there are aspects of any sort of deal where the SOP or the SBA has came in and said, if you do this or if you do not do this, you are either looking at a repair or you're flat out denied for your SBA guarantee. I get okay? it. Yeah. Those types of things, I mean, I've personally never seen a bank give in on that, but there are other things that also from our perspective recommendation-wise, they shouldn't give in to, but they might make some concessions just depending yeah. on the specifics of the deal. So you and I were talking a little bit offline, just kind of shooting the breeze about different deal structures. But one example that I've seen uh, before is when you have a situation with, uh, let's say there's a borrower and they just have a little satellite office, right? So home-based businesses are becoming more common. And let's say everything about the deal is approved, but we find out, hey, they rent space two days a week out of one America, right? Complete example. And they go there and there's a computer, they sit down and they just want to get away. Yep. And we look at it and the requirement is that you need to have a lease oh, for the term of the loan. I get it. And if that happens, the borrower might say, well, that's not working. We have a WeWork agreement and I can't get that. The lender will tell them it should be the lease should be the term of the loan, but they might make a business decision and say, okay, given the circumstances, the sure. fact that there's no collateral other than a 1997 LG computer screen right. and a desk that they don't own, we're okay making this concession here and we'll close the deal without requiring you to have a 10 year lease. Yeah, I, I, I can see that one. So the, 
I guess where, where I wanted to head next is, you know, where, where the, or better yet, who are, who are the biggest hassles that you face? <laughs> you know, because I mean, the, certainly, well, I, yeah, who are the, who, we'll start there. Who, 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 who gives you the, the greatest amount of heartburn in deals? Mm-hmm. Uh, normally you're going to see landlords are hard to deal with. Um, but I think the, the more direct answer to that is if we have buyer or seller's counsel who is operating outside of their wheelhouse. Uh, um, sure. and I'm not, uh, putting down any no. attorneys, but exactly. if we get a deal in and it is a, let's say a $4.5 million business acquisition. So it's an M and a transaction and buyer either hires a criminal law attorney or a family law attorney that's never seen an M and a transaction in his or her life. Got it. That will be very difficult to have a smooth transaction there uh, because they just haven't experienced. It'd be like asking me to represent somebody in a DUI case. You would never do that because it doesn't make sense for me. That's one side of that coin. The other side is actually probably what you wouldn't think. Uh, It's when we get a deal and they have insert law firm's name where the law firm and the attorneys are used to doing 100 million, 200 million, <laughs> $1 billion deals. Right. And, you know, maybe it's your buddy and they said, we'll take this case and we'll, we'll not charge you $1,500 an hour. We'll take it, but we're really, really experienced, sophisticated attorneys. Yeah. And the reason those deals will sometimes have more headaches is because they treat it like a billion dollar transaction when it's a $4.5 million transaction. Yeah. At that point, you're arguing for the sake of arguing. They're not understanding how SMB, small to medium-sized business transactions operate, and those can end up being really, really difficult. Mix in the egos uh, with some of those folks, it can be uh, very, very hard. So you have to hire somebody who is right for the job, somebody who knows lower uh, lower to middle market uh, types of deals, and preferably somebody who knows those deals and also knows SBA lending. If you have that, yeah, man. I mean, that's that's a walk in the park, and we'll close those deals all day, every day. Well, I'll tell you, we, and and we face that that same hurdle. I mean, we we had a deal, and it was it was half that, and they at the end of this thing, they had you know hundred and hundred thousand dollar plus legal fee, and 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 yeah, and they're total sticker shock, and yep. it was like, how in the world did you not think that this was going to happen? You know, mm-hmm. you, you saw, you saw the marquee, <laughs> you've been to the office, you know what, you know what you were getting into, but anyway, it is, it is what it is. So along the hassle factor, I was curious to know from a, um, from the preferred lenders versus the, you know, homegrown banks. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I mean, is there any difference or, you know, I, I suppose volume, you know, probably helps, but I'm just curious to know whether or not, you know, I, I know from our standpoint, when we, when we're battling somebody that, like you said, that doesn't do a whole lot of SBA work, it really it elongates the process. It becomes substantially more complicated than it necessarily needs to be. So do you, you find the same or no? Well, we, we deal with both uh, PLP lenders, prefer lenders, and then also GP lenders. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of them are, you, you will find quality banks and non-bank lenders on both sides. All that means is that when you have a PLP lender, they have a lot more flexibility uh, in decisions that they can make on their own okay. without having to ask okay. the okay. SBA or get approval from the SBA. So that does result 
usually in a much quicker closing timeline. It yeah. will sometimes result in a better certainty to close, which is usually a big, big, big want from borrowers. Um, sure. And generally, those are the ones that have met certain uh, uh, guideposts. Uh, yeah. Throughout the process, they've closed a certain number of deals. They've done certain things. They've met quality standards. So that's usually what you see with PLP lenders. But GP lenders are usually in the plight to obtain their PLP license. So yeah. I've seen, you know, in my opinion, some of the best banks uh, have started as GP. They've worked their way through it. Sure. They've obtained their license, and then it's it's game on, uh, and they're crushing it. So yeah. I wouldn't look to that necessarily from a yeah. borrower's perspective, but it's it's a factor to consider. You know, one of the things about SBA lending, and you used to hear a lot of the default rates. I don't think that there's nearly the the level of SBA defaults. I, 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 is that an accurate statement, or do you, do you not you guys not track that or ever hear of it? I don't look at the default rates as often because I, I'm more of a closer on the yeah, closing sure. side. Our litigation team for creditors' rights would probably have those types of statistics, mm -hmm. and yeah. and I'd be interested to know that as well. Yeah, because I, it, to me, I, I think. I think the whole system is a lot better at using the SBA as a as a tool to finance as opposed to yeah. you know the wild west. So I was just curious. Um so I know you know I I know you we were talking about the the SBA um you know coming out with whatever next version is you know uh, supposedly in, in November. But I mean to me, you know, I I look at that document and I mean, it's pretty comprehensive and you just, you just wonder what else can you throw in? And I, I'm not asking you to, to, to provide commentary. I guess that is a, a living document, you know, and, and, I, and where I'm heading with it is, you know, who do you turn to for guidance on it? And I know I touched on it a little earlier, but you know, I, you know, prudent is one thing, but, <laughs> It's a, it's a whole nother thing that, you know, it's a big document for people that don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a ton in there. Um, so I, I guess that's, that was kind of my question is, you know, it's, even the best practitioner has to defer to somebody. Who do you, who would that be for you? Yeah. So we study that document, of course, and it's a document in and of itself, but then you also have CFRs and various uh, links throughout it that will really give you even deeper detail uh, into what you look at. So if we're going outside of that document, right, yeah. we're usually looking to being plugged in with trade associations such uh, as Nagel, yep. uh, some of the other local associations, the SBA directly, other law firms, other lenders, and things like that to keep up on the types of trends that are going on and to get clarifications uh, when things come out. I mean, there's I, I won't mention names, but if something comes up and I'm, I'm really scratching my head here, I'm thinking, what does the SBA think? Well, I'll call somebody and say, hey, have you seen this before? Uh, uh, what do you take away from this? So that's part of it, just developing a knowledge base outside of the document mm -hmm. and making sure you're up to date with procedural notices, too. Um, you, well, you, have you read the procedural yeah. notices that come yeah. out from time uh -huh. to time, too? Yep. Well. I'll tell you one one guy, and and granted, you're a nationwide guy, you know, and and but here in Indiana, the, uh, Eric Armacost. I don't know if you know what a what a great resource he he has helped us immensely on mm -hmm. so many different occasions, and he is just a you know as far as the SBA goes, 
they are really fortunate to have a, a guy like mm-hmm. him because he is so generous with time as well as the inner the the information he's providing. Mm-hmm. So brokers differ widely. I mean, what you know? I know we talked about the sellers' council, you know, and and landlords being probably the 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 ones that give you the greatest heartburn. But in our profession, how 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 can we better work with folks like you with with brokers specifically yeah i mean from 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 the standpoint of how can you know from a brokerage standpoint i mean you know we put hopefully we'll put together a sound deal mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have all the information all the forms are are going together but from the time you get you know all the underwriting your your underwriting package and now it's we're heading toward closing is there anything any tripwires that we can be aware of that, you know what, th- th- if you were just smart enough to listen to me, <laughs> this yeah. is this is what will make your deal go a lot smoother. Anything yeah, so, come to mind? Yeah. So in those situations, if I'm directly dealing with a broker, it's usually because there's not another lawyer involved, right? Mm-hmm. So it's somebody who, buyer doesn't have counsel, seller doesn't have counsel, we've got a broker uh, and we're dealing with them. The best thing that they can do is to communicate effectively um, with our office. Okay. Many times, broker forms, not putting them down, but sometimes broker forms can have some glaring issues that sure. will cause repairs and denials for the banks. If something like that comes up and I, as counsel, reach out to the broker and say, hey, we can't have this or we need this this way, and we're met with, absolutely not. We've seen this before and we're never going to do this. That is not the way to approach it. And I will get that sometimes. They'll say, I've closed a thousand transactions and I've never had counsel ask me for this. Well, you're being asked now and I don't know which transactions you closed for who, but you probably closed them incorrectly and the bank took a risk. My client needs it this way. And if we can get on the phone or even on email and just walk through it, talk through what it needs to look like, usually it's done within a matter of five minutes. Bank's happy, buyer's happy, and the broker looks great. And usually I'll use that broker in the future as well. Yeah. You know, the, the tough part is, and, and, and again, there is an, and I preach that to, to our younger guys. I mean, there, there's a certain role that you play and, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to get the deal across the finish line. Everybody, right. there's no one that's, that's sitting here trying to, to, to dump on your deal. But at the same time, you have to understand that there, all these people that are are loaning you millions of dollars, mm-hmm. they have to to understand the risk that they're taking, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's not a reflection of you professionally to come back and say, look, you got to we we have to do it this way, and and again, and if if your client doesn't like it, then he doesn't like it, and he has options. You know, mm-hmm. he can pull the deal and and start over but oh by the way we're knowing knowing what i know about you we're probably going to bump into you again and 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 the bank is probably going to have be in the same position for the same client so yeah. why not just address it now and go ahead most, most banks have this a similar approach i mean there are differences in lenders and, mm-hmm. and you can figure those out you know on your own but at the end of the day if i'm asking a, a broker or whoever it is for a very specific revision. Um, there's a reason. Yeah. And sometimes they'll get upset and say, well, uh, we'll pull the deal and we'll go somewhere else. Well, you, you go somewhere else, you're going to have the same issue. Yeah. Uh, assuming that the lender 
understands the SOP and understands the transaction. So we're never trying to step on anyone's toes. Sure. Like you said, we're all kind of it sounds super cheesy, but we're in this together and we want to get this done in a way that protects all parties. I'm obviously looking out for the bank, but at the same time, I'm also looking out for a buyer in a way because that buyer, if something goes wrong, that buyer's not going to be able to repay its note. And then I have a client who has a defaulted loan. I don't want that. The bank doesn't want it either. Sure. And you would think that that would be self-evident, which, yeah. and, and yeah, and we bump, we bump into that periodically where, you know, the, the seller has dug their heels in and this is the way I want it. You know, kind of like a kid, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not going to change. Well, okay. Well, but at the same time, you're not going to get a deal. It doesn't work that way. And I know that, you know, you, you think that you have all the leverage and this is what, you know, we've been counseling this for years. The closer you are to completing the deal, the less leverage you have over mm-hmm. everybody. And you just need to understand that this is just part of the process. It's not a reflection of your business. It's just the way it is, especially when, oh, by the way, somebody is loaning this, your buyer 80, 90% of your purchase price. Why would, you know, and you would think that it would, it would resonate, but boy, it's sometimes it is a real, real mm-hmm. challenge. Um, speaking of 80 or 90%, standby notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that seems to be the, the vehicle of choice these days to, to, to get, to get deals across the line that, that, um, you know, the seller standby notes. So what, I guess, what is, what is your opinion? I mean, granted, it, it, this is back to risk. I understand that, you know, that the bank has to make that decision, but some of the provisions that, that, that you have seen, like, for example, um, standby note is great to get, you know, to, to bridge that equity gap. Totally, mm-hmm. totally get it. But where I was heading with it is not only that, but now earnouts used to be a lot of the deals we had, especially service businesses. And now, now they're in favor of self-canceling notes. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you, I guess what I'm asking is, are you familiar or do you, have you seen any deal structures where service related businesses are able to mitigate their risk through some sort of, yeah. I mean, you got the self-canceling notes. You got you can't do earnouts, but any other vehicles that you've seen or no? I, I've seen some of those unique vehicles in non-full standby seller notes. Okay. Um, and usually, when there is a seller note that's not on full standby, meaning it's not being used as equity injection. Yep. Uh, the ball is a lot more in the lender's court uh, because okay. they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, how is this going to impact my borrower? What does the bottom line look like here? What types of provisions in here are either compliant or are there any concerns about eligibility in here? There's more flexibility um, when it's not being used as injection. But the opposite side of that is when it's being used as injection, there is very little to no wiggle room there. And yeah. that is what you see people talk about this a lot um, on the internet and other places, but the full standby note 
is what it is. If your seller is going to uh, be taking back a note for any amount of money and it's being used as a full standby seller note, there, there are no payments. There are no payments of principal and interest during the term of the loan. And there's a bunch of other provisions in there as well, such as not being able to act on any of the collateral that the seller might be taking sure. that's securing the note. It is just that, a full standby note, no deviation, because then you have equity injection that's out of whack. Yeah. And equity injection is a big hot topic uh, yeah. with the SBA that cannot be violated in any instance. Well, the one of the things that that I guess is a myth <laughs> is that you know you can petition the SBA to release principal or interest or both on those standby notes. I I have never seen it happen ever 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 and and. But I think it's somewhere in the SOP that, that you can do that. But I've never, I've never seen anyone get any kind of payment. You? I, I, I saw I you shake your head. That. Yeah. I have not seen that either because when you have a deal that's structured and they say, Hey, Ed, you're going to have to inject $500,000 into this deal. Mm -hmm. And you say, um, I can't. Can I take at least $100,000 of my equity from a seller note? And the bank says, Yes. Well, in that instance, yeah, you're getting credit for that $100,000 seller note, but that seller's not getting paid until the SBA is paid in full. Yeah. And that is the whole purpose of that note, sure. that vehicle, because they are strictly subordinate to the SBA. It's a very bright line approach that they take. So short answer, no, I, yeah. I have not seen that on those types of deals. I get it. All right. So my my last question, I, I ask of all of my guests, but unfortunately, you're, you're going to get the three-part one. Um <laughs> So the question is, if you had one piece of advice to give our listeners, what would, in your case, be uh, most valuable in getting a deal done? And so the three parts are, what would you tell a buyer? What would mm -hmm. you tell a seller? And what would you tell you know an, an attorney representing either of them? You know, I'm going to take the easy way out here and give you one answer for all three. All right. Um, and it is make sure that your deal team is in order or whatever you want to call it. Some people will call it their board of directors. Some people call it their deal team. And what I mean by that is when you are heading into the LOI stage or really any stage in your search, mm -hmm. make sure that you're thinking about who is going to be my counsel on this transaction, who is going to be my lender, who is going to be my broker if there is one. Who is going to be my accountant? Who is going to be my emotional support? <laughs> right? Sure. No, no. Whether it's a spouse, it. a friend, or somebody else, who's going to be my mentor? You know, all of these sort of things. If you have those solidified going into it, you will have such an easier time getting that deal to close. And I, I preach this a lot when I'm talking to buy side counsel, or if I'm buy side counsel, you know, I'm saying who has experience in what. How is this going to be organized and yep. how are we getting to the closing table? Yep. If you have that in order, you're, you're sitting pretty on, on that deal and much more likely to close and much more likely to close without uh, copious amounts of Advil. <laughs> I got it. All right. Well, what's the best way we can connect with you? Yeah, so uh, I'm really active actually on LinkedIn, which is something that people on Twitter don't like to hear. Uh, but you can find Scott Oliver on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at S A Oliver underscore A T T Y, uh, or uh, send me an email. Uh, my okay. firm is Lewis Capus, and my email address is S Oliver 
at lewiscappus.com. I'm always open to chat, uh, whether it's SBA, M&A, or any of the topics we've discussed today. I'm a bit of a nerd, if I must say so. Yeah, I don't think you're a nerd. I, I think you're you're right in the sandbox I like. So I, I totally appreciate I totally appreciate you and, and what you do. Everything that we've talked about is going to be in the show notes, including where to find you and where. So, Scott, thanks so much for hanging out with me this morning. Thank you so much, Ed. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.